This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome into the Wednesday Bible Study. I'm Rick Burgess, co host of The Rick and Bubba Show and director of TheManChurch.com. We are here again at the Rick and Bubba Studios uh, for another Wednesday Bible study. Thank you for being here. We're continuing our study uh, from the book uh, by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. What is the concept? Well, the concept is uh, do you know a lot about God uh, or do you really know God? And, and sometimes these two things are not the same thing. And we're, So we're getting an in-depth look at what God has to say about himself, it found in the revelation about himself, and about us, and that is in His Holy Word. And we've we've talked about the different characteristics of God because what we tend to do is we tend to kind of walk over to God and treat Him like He's a buffet, and we pull out parts of His character that we like, and we ignore parts of His character that we don't. And J.I. Packer rightfully um, says uh, that it's it's best for us to understand every aspect of God to truly know God. He is not hiding Himself from us. He's not withholding who He is. If we only make the effort to seek him, he says that we will find him. So we're going to continue. Last week we talked about uh, the, the, the God's grace, that part of his character, and to fully understand it, we have to understand how wonderful his grace is because of how wretched we truly are. Uh, we've also talked about God's love. Uh, today we're going to talk about God's judge, and then next week we'll talk about uh, God's wrath. So today we'll be focus, focusing on God the judge, what does the Bible say about uh, this, uh, this characteristic of the one and only living God? Know that themanchurch.com is out and about a couple of notes. Uh, we will be out again this week. We have multiple churches that are plugging in uh, the discipleship strategy found at themanchurch.com. McGee, Mississippi, First Baptist Church uh, will be happening if you're listening to this live or watching it live. It's on a Wednesday, the 24th, well, the 25th. Um, I'll be there in McGee, Mississippi at First Baptist Church and kicking off um, the men's discipleship strategy. We'll do high challenge in, in the man church service, and then they'll plug men into the small groups of our 40-week curriculum. Uh, Saturday night, the 27th, I'll be in Lindale, Georgia. This will be an outside event, kind of a tailgate setup. There'll be a low country boil, uh, and then this will be the man church, the high challenge. They'll be plugging in to the 40-week curriculum. Coming up on Sunday, I'll be, I'll be at the men's breakfast at First Baptist Church in Asheville, Alabama. I will we'll do the breakfast, and then I'll go in and speak to the entire church for the morning service. April the 1st, Mobile, Alabama. We'll be in the hangar for the USS Alabama, the battleship. Uh, the men uh, will be there for the Forge men's event. Uh, I'll be giving them high challenge, and then we'll talk about an opportunity for them to work into the discipleship classes as well. Uh, on April 3rd, uh, I'll be speaking at the men of Shelby Wild Game Dinner. That'll be uh, at South Shelby Baptist Church in beautiful Shelby, Alabama. Uh, that will be an event. Any man is welcome to attend. Uh, that will feature the high challenge that night. Uh, they are not doing the curriculum yet, but they are getting ready to do it. So hopefully this will be them kind of testing the waters. Uh, then up to Cleveland, Tennessee on April the 9th, uh, it will be uh, Fields, Woods, and Water. Uh, this is the big event that uh, they have there at First Baptist Church, Cleveland, Tennessee. I'm honored to be their speaker this year. Uh, and we'll have uh, all of our resources available there. Uh, then coming up on April the 30th, I'll be at another Forged Men's event. Uh, this will be coming up in Somerville, Georgia. 
Uh, and if you'd like to find out about that one on the 3rd, you can. And then uh, I'll be speaking at the uh, First Baptist Church of Colquitt, Georgia on May 2nd. That is a man church. And then they'll be kicking off the men's 40 weeks of discipleship that we provide. Speaking of our 40-week curriculums, uh, we have a brand new one. Uh, the first one's been out for a year. It's called The Pursuit. Some churches are finishing that. Others are just starting, and some are somewhere in between. Some are yet to start but are about to. But if uh, you are, uh, have a church or a community that you would like to look at our next 40-week curriculum that's coming up, it's based on eight men of the Bible, uh, five weeks on each man, uh, and that will be available to you coming up at themanchurch.com in mid-April. So be looking for that, and I'll, I'll keep you posted on that too. If you follow me on social media, uh, just, just look for The Man Church. The Man Church uh, can be found out on social media. We have, uh, we have a Twitter account. We have an Instagram account, and you can find a... Uh, Stay kind of up-to-date with what we're doing if you'll follow us on social media. Just look, just look on your search and put The Man Church, The Man Church, and it should come up, and then go ahead and start following us so you can stay informed. Let's open up with a word of prayer, and let's dive in uh, to today's characteristic of God, God the Judge. Lord, thank you for today. You, you are, you will judge. You, you have judged. Uh, you are the ultimate perfect judge, and we will unpack that characteristic about you today, Lord. Help us to understand uh, who you are. Uh, allow us to know you, uh, you know, in, in the most intimate way that can be, that could possibly take place between you, the one and only living God, and us created beings by you and need, in need of your redemption that you provide and looking forward to the day that we return to being in your presence. Uh, Lord, help us today. Unpack this in the correct way. Uh, help me to overcome all the flaws that I have as a teacher uh, to teach this correctly. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, so first of all, you got to start with the concept of, of, of God the judge. Do you, this is question number one, do you believe in divine judgment? Do you, do you believe that is something true about God, that there is a divine judgment that is coming? Do you believe in a God that, uh, that acts as our judge? Now, we, the reason why I ask that is... I don't know why we do this, but you see this. I know in a lot of times the big celebrities, uh, I know that Oprah at one time made some comments that there were things about God she didn't like. Uh, so she wasn't going to serve a God. Uh, that uh, And the one that really bothered her, she didn't like him being a jealous God. Uh, she said, I don't want to serve a God that's jealous uh, or whatever. She didn't understand that concept. That just meant that uh, it means that God will not have us serving any other God than him uh, because uh, uh, of his worthiness. Uh, and it's blasphemy to do to think of him as uh, unworthy of our worship, and that something else is. Uh, but she didn't like that, so she started her own version of God. And people do that a lot. Uh, maybe you're someone that says, ah, "I don't really like God being a judge. I don't like the fact uh, that God is a divine judge, and I don't like the the, the talk of divine judgment. And I'd rather plug uh, my fingers in my ears and grind my teeth and not hear that." So the first thing you have to to ask the ask yourself is, "Do you?" Believe in divine judgment, and are you okay with the fact that this is part of God? So we'll start there. People seem to struggle uh, with this aspect of God, uh, as you know. This is you know the big men upstairs. People don't really like this aspect of God, uh, but here's the problem: there are few things that are stressed more strongly in the Bible than the reality of God's work as judge. It's covered a lot in the Bible, and I can already hear some of you. I can already hear it. Yeah, in the Old Testament. No, no. We're, today, we're going to lay that to rest today. Uh, Y'all know that God doesn't change, right? 
And I know it's convenient to act like that suddenly God got his act together and became more palatable in the New Testament. Uh, no, the New Testament is about our, his plan of redemption and us now having a way to stop all the animal sacrifices and all these rituals that we now have one ultimate Lamb of God who now has paid the price and we can all be redeemed through this one sacrifice that was for all and, uh, and in him. So, but, uh, but it's not that, that somehow the characteristics of God change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Uh, that, that, just, that just isn't true, and we'll find that. Judge is a word often applied to God. Some of the examples, you can write these down if you want to. Uh, the psalmist in uh, Psalm 75, verse 7, Psalm 75, verse 7, says this, It is God who judges. Uh, Psalms 82, verse 8, Rise up, O God, judge the earth. In the New Testament, as I told you, this doesn't end in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews says this, uh, God, the judge of all. And that's in Hebrews 12, 23. This is not uh, a matter of a word merely either. Uh, this is the reality. The Bible makes it clear. This is talking about an actual divine judgment as a fact, it is set forth on page after page of biblical history. Uh, let's go back to the beginning. You, you can't even get out of the Garden of Eden. You can't even get out of the Garden of Eden. And you see God the judge. Uh, Adam and Eve uh, were expelled from the garden. They were judged. Uh, and and uh, he pronounced curses on their future earthly life. If you want to see those, just go to Genesis chapter 3. You'll see the fall of mankind where where human beings made a choice that they would, uh, they would do the one thing that God said not to do, and the result of that, a divine judge, now we forced his hand and he judged mankind and expelled them from the garden and took the man and the woman and said, here's some curses that are going to come down on you, and I'm judging that this is how it's going to be because of your sin. Uh, I mean, we can't, we, we can't even get deep into the Word of God. This is already happening. God judged the corrupt uh, world in Noah's day, uh, sending a flood to destroy humankind. If you read Genesis 6-8, through you will see that God judged the world uh, and the evil in the world, and his judgment was that everybody would be killed except eight people that got on the ark. And that was his judgment. Uh, for those of you that think that, uh, that God somehow, as we mentioned before, uh, just can't quite be complete without us. Uh, he said he regretted ever making us in, in Genesis 6. Uh, God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, engulfing them in a volcanic uh, catastrophe. Uh, that's in uh, Genesis 18 and 19. Uh, God judged Israel's Egyptian taskmasters. Masters. Uh, he, he, he told them he would, hey, look, I'm going to judge them. What you're going through right now, the way they're treating you, I'm doing this to refine you. I'm doing this to turn you back to me but know that I won't let their treatment of you go. And he didn't. Uh, and you see that in Genesis 15, 14. Uh, he, uh, he unleashed against them the terrors of the ten plagues, uh, which we also saw in Exodus 7 through 12. So he said he was going to judge them, and he did. God judged those who worshiped the golden calf uh, when Moses went up to talk to him about the Ten Commandments. And he used the Levites as his executioners. Uh, by the way, he did, not, uh, he did not take the worship of the calf very well. Uh, and he judged that behavior. Exodus 32, 26 through 35, we'll tell you that story. And, and I don't even have time 
in my allotted time, and we teach for an hour here, I do not have time to give you every biblical example today of God the judge. There's too many. Uh, but you, if, you, if you have the book, you can see other examples that J.I. Packer uh, lays out. So understand that, that uh, these are also uh, um, narratives that are, you know, the divine, the divine judgment, it, it is not confined to the Old Testament. I made that point right out of the gate today. Here we go. In the New Testament story, judgment falls on the Jewish people for their rejection of Christ. Uh, Matthew 23, 37, Jesus is crying over Jerusalem, and he's saying, you're bringing judgment on yourself, and it was my desire that you would not have rejected me, and I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Uh, you can find this out uh, uh, on what this judgment looked like, too, after they rejected Jesus as Messiah. Write these down. Matthew 21, 43 and 44. First Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verses 14 through 16. You see it covered there. So Matthew 21, 43 and 44, 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 through 16, deals with God's judgment on his own people for their rejection of Messiah. Ananias and Sapphira. Let's get started on this one. Acts chapter 5. It's not pretty. Ananias and Sapphira try to, they pretend to to give more sacrificially than they really were because they wanted to get the applause like Barnabas got, who did give everything that he got from selling a piece of land. They tried to pretend to give all of it but keep a little, and God killed both of them uh, right in front of the rest of the church. And one of my uh, statements that I've underlined in my Bible in Acts chapter 5, when he kills Ananias and Sapphira for their deceitfulness, it says a great fear came upon the church. Now, I bet it did. I bet it did. Uh, you think anybody uh, 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 made up a tithe after that? Probably not. Uh, so, so God did judge that behavior, and you find that in Acts chapter 5, as I said, 1 through 10. Herod, he judged Herod for his pride. Uh, Luke talks about this in Acts 12, 21 through 23. Uh, also on uh, Elymas, uh, he, God judged him for his opposition to the gospel. He, he tried to say he, he, he went against the gospel going out, and God judged him, Acts 13, uh, 8 through 11. Uh, how about this? Look at the letters that Paul's writing to the Christians at Corinth. Um, it, Paul says that God allowed them to be afflicted with illness because of the, the rampant sin that, that, was, that was going on that was uh, blaspheming the purity of the church. You know, I heard Steve Farrar talking about it in his Bible study. I'm, I catch that every week that he's doing one as best I can. And I, right now I'm caught up, so I just caught the latest one. And he said, you know, people often mock the Puritans. But really, if you look at it, I'm sure there were some people that, who were Puritans who maybe weren't good people. But really the reason why we automatically like to make fun of the Puritans is because they were so committed to the purity of the church, we don't like that. It bothers us. Really, they were just devoted Christians is what they were. And they were devoted to the purity of the church. And so you see, apparently, that's a big deal to God because when the church at Corinth was allowing open, unrepented sin to exist in the body of the church, Paul says he's trying to get your attention and he's afflicted you with illness and this is why some of y'all have died. So there's God's judgment. If you don't believe that, then you can go to 1 Corinthians 11, 29 through 32. 1 Corinthians 11, 29 through 32. You, almost want to take, you also want to take a look, if I can add this, from my own experience of studying these letters, 
Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, too. Uh, this, is, this is Paul really saying that God is upset about some of the behavior. If you go to this one about the illnesses, he was really upset with the way that they were blaspheming the Lord's Supper. He didn't like the way they were doing it. And, and, and it apparently was a big deal to him. And, uh, and this is only a selection from the abundant accounts of divine acts of judgment which the Bible contains. Again, we don't have time today for me to go through every one of them. Uh, so if you're someone who, who actually reads the Bible, um, and, and you, 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 will, you will be confident and assured that when we move from the Old Testament to the, to the New Testament, the theme of divine judgment uh, does not fade into the background. If we examine the New Testament even in the most casual way, uh, we find at once that the Old Testament emphasizes emphasis I'm sorry, on God's action as a judge has far from been reduced. It actually, if you look at the New Testament, and J.I. Packer makes this point, it actually intensifies. Because I, you know, one thing you have to think about is that look, look at the cross. You know, I, I got a chance to say this um, at um, our friend Bill Searcy's funeral Sunday, who, who was a, a, a devout attender of this Wednesday Bible study and a dear friend. And one of the things that, that was brought up and, and, and we talked about because there were people there that were lost. They'd never even heard the gospel before. And that was, that was, that was Bill's intention that, that his funeral featured the gospel uh, and that Rich Wingo and I were told by him on his deathbed, you both get up and speak and I want you to present the gospel because I've got a lot of friends from my past. I've got a lot of family members that are going to be lost and they're going to come to this memorial service. And like Solomon correctly said, sometimes it's better to go to a funeral than to the, uh, a party because at a funeral, you'll start assessing what's going to happen to you when you die. You may actually learn something. And that took place in a big way. The Holy Spirit moved, and one of the things that was talked about was when you look at, at Jesus on the cross, that either redeems you or it condemns you. Because if you reject that, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus on the cross, it is finished, either redeems you or it condemns you. And, and God's judgment is handed down there as much as his forgiveness is handed down there. This is it. This is the only way you can be right with me. Uh, so the New Testament, I think, even intensifies God the judge. If you really pay attention, I agree with J.I. Packer on that. I'm sure he's thrilled in heaven that I agreed with him on that. Um, the entire New Testament is overshadowed by the certainty of a coming day of universal judgment and, uh, and by the problem uh, you know, which is arising, how many... And how may, may you and I, how, uh, how may we as sinners get right with God while there is yet time? See, when you get to the New Testament, you've entered the church age. So now as a sinner, you're starting to think, this judgment of God, it's, it's close. You know, he went silent for 400 years from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But once that New Testament started, well, now the day of judgment, you know, what, what did Jesus say? Hey, the day of the Lord is here, meaning redemption has come. So now all he's waiting on is whatever in his divine, perfect timeline, he's waiting for a certain number of the church age to come in, and it's over. And right now he's delaying it because he's so gracious, which we talked about last week. But we are closer to God's divine, ultimate, final judgment than we've ever been. So I, to me, that means the New Testament is, is it, it, it's, all, it's a little more a little more intensity. 
but praise God, last we talked about last week, for His grace. It's there, but if you reject it, you're going to get God the judge, and His justice will be uh, His wrath, which we'll talk about a little more next week, what it looks like. The New Testament looks on the day of judgment, the day of wrath, the wrath to come, and proclaims Jesus, the divine Savior, as the divinely appointed judge. So who ultimately is going to judge now? The Son. But that was given to the Son by the Father, who is the ultimate judge. But he says, I'm going to give this, this responsibility of judgment to my Son, and we're going to see that coming. You see many examples of this. Look at um, uh, James chapter 5, verse 9. The judge who stands before the door, ready to judge the living and the dead. First Peter, we talked about this in our study of First Peter, and we talked about that in our study of James too. First Peter chapter four, verse five, he's called Jesus is called the righteous judge who will give uh, Paul his crown of righteousness. In Second Timothy four, verse eight, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has been designated by God as judge of the living and the dead. Luke writes about this in Acts 10, 42. God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Uh, Paul told this to the Athenians. If you look at Acts 17, this is a great chapter, by the way. Acts 17, verse 31. He also told it to the Romans when he said this in Romans chapter 2, verse, uh, chapter two, verse 16. Here's what he said to the Romans. He said, God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ. So he's going to be appointed uh, the ultimate judge. And I love this, and Paul says, as my gospel declares. Jesus himself says the same. What did Jesus say? We, we learned about this in our study of the Gospel of John. He said this quite a bit. And here's, some of the, here's what he said in the Gospel of John. The Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son, and he has given him authority to judge. A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice, talking about himself, and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. Those who have done evil will, be, will rise to be condemned. Back to what I said. Jesus is either here to save you or to condemn you, and you got to decide which one of those he's going to be. And all this was found in John chapter 5. Uh, I just read to you verses 22. 27 through 29. The Jesus of the New Testament, who is the world's Savior, is also the judge as well. Well, if you think about it, him being judge is what makes him Savior. Can you follow that line of thought? Because he's the judge that says, I forgive you and you will not be punished the way you deserve. I, the judge, have saved you from the judgment that I will be handing down. You see how that works? So, um, so what are some of the characteristics of the judge? J.I. Packer talks about this. Uh, but what, what does this mean when we talk about a judge? What is involved in the idea of the Father, or now, of course, Jesus, being a judge? And here's some of the thoughts he gives. Number one, the judge is a person with authority. Right? We just talked about this, so write that down. Number one, these are the characteristics of the judge. In the, in, in, the, in the biblical world, the king was always the supreme judge. The king, you know, they didn't have some separate judge you went to. He was the judge because his uh, was the supreme ruling authority. It is on that basis, according to the Bible, that God is judge, king, the king of the world. As our maker, he now owns us, and he is our owner. He has the right to depose of us. 
He has therefore a right to make laws for us, to reward us according to whether or not we keep them. Uh, in most modern states, the legislator and the judiciary are divided so that the judge does not make the laws he administers. But that wasn't the way it was in the ancient biblical world. It wasn't that way at all, uh, and it's not that way with God. He is both the lawgiver and the judge. These are not two separate things. He makes the law, he enforces the law, and he is the judge on punishment for not living up to the law, which is why redemption and his grace last week was such a big deal. He's ultimately saying, bring me this, and then, and then I'll, you're forgiven. I, I, I won't judge you. Uh, I, I will approve of you if you come to me redeemed in my son. So this is very, very important that you understand the difference. Don't, don't picture this. I don't know how to break it to somebody because it may be heartbreaking. Heaven is not a constitutional republic. Heaven is not a democracy. Uh, we're going to be living in the presence of a benevolent king. But if you reject that king's plan of redemption in his son, then you will never stand approved in the presence of this king. You will be judged by this king, and you will be removed from his presence, and you will face the punishment. you got to understand that. If you don't really understand this, the gospel probably doesn't mean that much to you. I mean, this is a really big deal. This is what makes the gospel so wonderful. Secondly, second characteristic of the judge, the judge is a person identified with what is good and right, meaning it is the judge who decides what is the law. What, what he, you say, well, I think so-and-so ain't no big deal. Well, does God feel the same way? No, uh, the, the judge is a person who is identified with what's good and right. The modern idea that a judge should be this cold, dispassionate uh, person has no place in the Bible. The biblical judge is expected to love justice and fair play, and to loathe all ill treatment of one person by another. An unjust judge who has no interest in seeing right triumph over wrong is by biblical standards a monstrosity. The Bible leaves us no doubt that God loves righteousness and hates iniquity and that the ideal of a judge wholly identified with what is good and right is perfectly fulfilled in him, we don't have a flawed judge. I mean, on, on earth, you might have a judge that's taking a little money over here on the side to rule a certain way, whether it's right or wrong. I hate to say it, on earth, you don't always stand before a righteous judge. You stand before flawed people that may or may not care what is right or wrong or care what is good and evil. Uh, they may be totally indifferent to that. But that is not the type of judge that God is, and it's not the type of judge we find in the Bible. The judges, here's the third characteristic. So first characteristic, it's a person with authority. Second characteristic, it's a person identified with what is good and right. Third, the judge is a person of wisdom to discern the truth. He's not going to get it wrong. Judge, uh, He is the perfect judge. In the biblical setting, the judge's first task is to discern the facts in the case that is before him. Now, there is no jury. It, it is his responsibility and his alone to question and cross-examine and to detect lies and pierce through evasions and establish how matters really stand. So you might go in front of an earthly judge, and if you get your act together, you get you a good lawyer, you might be able to deceive and fool the judge that, that what people say you did or didn't do, uh, is it, you, you, that could, they could say you did something that was criminal, and that be the truth, but this flawed earthly judge can't discern that, 
He's just looking at whatever evidence is presented to him, and you might do a good job of fooling that judge and get away with something, but not with God. God will judge perfectly. He knows what, I mean, like, like you heard uh, Paul talking about, he knows what we do in secret. He knows how we live our lives. He knows everything we're doing, and he is omnipotent. He is omniscient, and he is omnipresent. He never gets it wrong. Uh, he discerns. You cannot stand in front of God and say, I don't deserve blank, because he knows that you do or you don't. Hey, I've been wronged. And I know sometimes, and we'll talk about this as we finish up this study, we start thinking that God doesn't see what everybody's doing. He, he, he sees that. Uh, you, you see in, in, in the Bible, many times God will deal with a group of evil people later, like I talked about with the Egyptians. He did this as it was that the Amalekites did the same thing. You know, if you remember when, when Moses was trying to get to the promised land, the Amalekites didn't let them come through and made them go further around and gave them a hard time about it. And God didn't do anything then, but he said, I'll remember that. And then if you go to David, when David's ruling, he says, by the way, I said we're going to go get the Amalekites. We're, that we're going to do that now, and buddy, they they wiped them out, and and so he doesn't forget, and he judges on his own wrong time. So don't you worry if you think somebody on this earth is getting away with something that blasphemes God or or does evil to people who are innocent. Don't you worry, as the Lord says, He will judge, and He will judge that on His own time, but He will judge it correctly. So if you remember this. Um, God's judging, it emphasizes what I just talked about, his omniscience and wisdom as the searcher of hearts and the finder of facts. Nothing can escape him. Uh, as I just said, we may fool men, but you will never, ever fool God. Remember this, when Abraham met the Lord in, in human form at the Oaks, he, he, he gave Abraham to understand that he was on the way to Sodom to establish the truth about the moral situation there. The Lord God said the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry uh, that I am hearing um, uh, that has reached me. If not, I will know. So he says that to Abraham in Genesis 18, 20, 21. He goes, I hear a lot of outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. Trust me, I'll check on this. And if they're exaggerating, fine. But I'll find out whether all this outcry is, is, is correct and worthy. Is Sodom and Gomorrah worthy of the judgment of my wrath, or, or, or should I look upon them and show some, some grace? Is it as bad as everybody says? I'll look into it, and I'll know. Uh, so it is always God will know. I would under, underline that. God will know. There's nothing that's going to happen that God's not going to know about, and he will judge it correctly, correctly. So uh, let's look at the fourth characteristic of, 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 of God as the judge. Number one, it's a person with authority. Number two, it's a person identified correctly with what is good and right. Number three, uh, the judge uh, uh, characteristic of God is a person of wisdom who discerns truth and never gets it wrong. Number four, uh, the judge is a person of power to execute sentence. The modern judge does no more than pronounce the sentence. Another department of the judicial executive then carries it out. Uh, the same was true in the ancient world, but God is his own executioner. As he legislates and sentences, sentences so he punishes, all judicial functions go through him.
even the punishment. He doesn't say that I'm pronouncing my wrath against you, but it'll come from somebody else. Now, when God, when God says, you have rejected my redemption, or you have done evil against me, or you've done evil against my people, or you've done this and that, and you're unrepentant, he doesn't say, and I sentenced you to eternal death, and I'm going to put you in a holding uh, place, and somebody else will come in here and do it. Now, when he says that you are damned, then you are. And he hands that punishment out. And the reason why he's doing that is because he can't change the characteristic about him being holy. He can't have guilty people in his presence, so they are banished and they are punished. And if you remember in John 15, Jesus says, if you are a branch and you are not connected to me, meaning you're unredeemed, you didn't connect to the vine, you rejected redemption, and you show up in front of my Father, you will be a withered, dry branch, and the only thing that kind of branch is good for is fire. So why? why? It's important. This next concept is important. So why does God have to judge the way he judges? Now, this goes back to last week's study a little bit. We've got to understand this concept because I think you'll understand the gospel, you'll understand God more. And this concept of retribution, you have to understand, and I don't want to land too much on this because it was covered in quite detail last week, because what has been said is becoming clear that the Bible's proclamation of God's work as judge is part of its witness to his character. It confirms what is said elsewhere of his moral perfection. He is morally perfect. His righteousness and justice, his wisdom, his omniscience, as we just talked about, his omnipotence, it shows us that the, the heart of the, of the justice which expresses God's nature is retribution. It can't help but happen because God's wrath must be handed out on sin. The, the rendering to persons what they have deserved, for this is the essence of of the judge's task. To reward good with good and evil with evil is natural to God. He's not going to reward evil with good. It's not going to happen. That's not the proper retribution, which that's why we had to have this redemption plan. What This, this is why you have to understand this is why Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is why his capillaries are bursting and his sweat is, is mixing with blood is because the the tremendous amount of stress that he is under, and it's not because of the cross. Some of the guys have heard me explain this in, in this Wednesday Bible study, but you might be new to this. That's, look, the cross is horrible. It's a horrific way to die. I'm not undermining that at all or, or belittling that or dumbing it down. Okay, so don't hear that. But this is not this moment between God the Father and God the Son 100% man and 100% God, that 100% man side realizes about retribution. And he says, what I'm about to take, because he says, Father, let this cup pass. Is there another way for this cup not to be poured out on me? That's not the cross. The cross is part of it, but what he's talking about is, Father, I know you're a righteous judge, and retribution is going to be handed out on sin, on evil, and I'm about to step in and take what has to happen for these people 
who will then be redeemed. So God's wrath is going to be poured out. The Father's wrath, the perfect Father, the Holy Father, holy, 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 His wrath, that retribution was poured out on Jesus instead of us for those who are redeemed. So if you didn't get under that redemption, that retribution is still coming, but it's going to come on you. So Jesus took that for us, and that's a stressful moment that he's about to take retribution from God on himself. And that'll bring a little stress to the situation. But, praise his holy name, when he heard no alternate plan, that cup of God's wrath, that cup of retribution, he was resolute to the cross because he said, I'm not here to do my will, I'm here to do the will of my Father. Not my will be done, Father, but your will be done. Praise his holy name. Thank you, Jesus, for that. So those that have been redeemed, retribution is still coming out. It's still going to happen, but Jesus offers you to be protected from it. Is everybody tracking with me? Everybody good? So when the New Testament speaks of the final judgment, it always represents it in terms of retribution. God will judge all people. It says according to their works. How does it look? What's the fruit of your life? Do you look redeemed or not redeemed? Matthew 16, verse 27. Write that down. Revelation. This is, this, we're seeing the final judgment here in Revelation 20. But I got news for you. There's a list in Revelation 20 of people that are going to receive retribution. You better look see if, if, if your life looks like that list. And, and, and Revelation chapter 20. You know what the first one in, the, in there is? You know what the very first one is? The cowardly. Those that wouldn't stand up for him. Those, those that rejected God and they lived their lives cowardly, cowing to the world and not standing up for God. That's the number one person on that list, the cowardly. And, and Paul amplifies, God's, uh, amplifies this point. God will give to each person according to what he has done. Well, Rick, what's all this about what we do? And, and this goes back to last week about grace abuse. Grace should produce change in people. Jesus says, and back to John 15, uh, you, you abide in me, I abide in you, and I will produce much fruit in you, proving that you are my disciple. So what, what Paul is saying is God can see how you live your life, and he looks at how you live your life, and the judgment will be handed down on whether you're the real deal or not. Look, a man saved my life by telling me that when I was lost and kept telling everybody I was redeemed. He said, we don't see the evidence in your life, Rick, of redemption. Where is it? And it wasn't there. I'm not talking about perfection on this side of heaven. But you, the, the, the follower and disciple of Jesus still struggles with sin, okay? Struggle, that's different. But the disciple of Jesus, according to Scripture and according to what I've experienced with the power of Jesus, the disciple of Jesus does not continue to willfully, perpetually, continuously sin. And that's why he says he's going to judge people who live that way as not being the real deal because that doesn't say much about his power to change people. So, to those who are persistent in, do, uh, persistent in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who continues to do evil. But glory honor, and peace for everyone who does good, for God does not show favoritism. Romans 2, 6-11. That's, a big, that's, a, that's an incredible 
speech of clarity from Paul, and we, we went through this when we did our study on Romans, but let, let's say it again. God will give each person according to what he's done to those who, by persistence and doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, for God does not show favoritism. Romans 2, 6 through 11. What he says is, he's not going to look over and go, ah, this guy or this woman, they're unredeemed, they live evil, but, you know, I'm kind of a shifty kind of judge, I'm inconsistent, I know they're wicked and evil, but I just like them, so I'm going to punish this person who lives just like them, but for them, I won't give them a pass. They're not redeemed, but I just, I like, I like them better than I like this other person. Paul says he doesn't show that kind of favoritism. He forgives the redeemed and he punishes the unredeemed equally. So Christians are explicitly included in the reference when Paul says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5.10. I told you to look at chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5.10. You know what that means? Every one of us is going to answer for what we did. Now, some of us, you know, the good, the good news is we're going to be forgiven if we're redeemed, but we still will answer even after our redemption for what we did with it. I mean, you hear Paul talking about he's going to receive the crown of righteousness because he fought the fight and he finished the, the race. You also hear him in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, and 10 saying that he worked harder than the other apostles because of his persecution of the church, that he was going to make sure that the grace he was given that it wasn't in vain. You've heard me talk about this. I'm going to work harder than the others because I had this thing wrong and I know that I'm going to, I will, I'm forgiven, but I know that I kill people I wasn't supposed to kill. So I, I want to be sure when I stand before him, he says, you know what, when I forgave you, you didn't just, you didn't just knock it out of gear and go, whew, I killed those people I shouldn't have killed and I jailed those people I shouldn't have jailed. He's forgiven me, so whew, let me just sit tight here and try not to make trouble till we all go home. No, Paul said, I will work harder than the rest of them because I'm going to advance his kingdom because I know I'm going to stand there you know, uh, in a day and I don't want him to look at me even if I'm redeemed and say, well, my redemption of you really didn't produce much at all. We all will, will appear before the judgment seat. Thus, retribution appears as natural and predetermined an expression of the divine character of God as anything. God has resolved to be every person's judge rewarding every person according to his works. This retribution is the inescapable moral law of creation. God will see that each person, sooner or later, receives what he deserves, if not here, definitely in the hereafter. You know, and this is a term that uh, you see J.I. Packer talking about. And you see this in the psalmist. Have you ever read Psalm 73? This is, he can't believe that these evil people aren't being wiped off the face of the earth. And, and he begins to cry out, there's no justice. I mean, the problem of the psalmist who saw this inoffensive people being victimized, meaning innocent people were being victimized by the ungodly, and he says, why are the ungodly people not in trouble? 
they're not facing the troubles of other men, but, but, but they're prospering, and it seems like they're getting away with it. Well, the psalmist, of course, is wrong because uh, God makes it clear that he will deal with everybody sooner or later. Nobody gets away with it. Why then do we fight, we, we, we fight shy of the thought of God as a judge? Why, why do, Packer says, why do we have a problem with this? Why won't we deal with this? You, you really understand what's at stake if you'll understand this concept, this characteristic of God. Why do we feel this thought to be unworthy of God? Almost like we don't like it. I will tell you, and I guess this makes me kind of strange. Last week is what has always perplexed me, and that's God's grace. God as a judge and God's wrath that we'll talk about next week really makes is more consistent and makes more sense to me. We've all rejected him and thumbed our nose at him and, uh, and, and have treated him with such disdain and, if not, apathy. And here he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the great I am, holy, 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 I can't believe that he tolerates another minute of us. I can't believe he offered redemption. That surprises me. Judgment actually makes sense. And I think the reason why some people don't like the judgment side of it, I think it goes back to a little bit of last week, I think there's a pride and arrogance there. How dare God judge me? How dare God judged the world. We're just down here trying to have a little fun doing whatever we want to do. How dare he judge us? I don't like that part of him. I like big man upstairs. I like, uh, I like the shack. I, I want him to be this sweet old lady. Which, by the way, please don't ever watch the shack or read that book. So, um, so some reason we don't like this. Would a God who did not care about the difference between right and wrong be good and a God to be admired? See, I admire the fact that God says, I don't tolerate wickedness, I don't tolerate evil, but at the same time, I'm gracious to those who'd like to be forgiven for it. I offer redemption, but I don't tolerate it, and I'm offering you redemption because I don't like this. I want this sin removed. I do not delight in evil. I delight in good. Why have we got a problem I would really be more confused by God that says, yeah, there's a lot going on here that's just awful, and I'm, I'm, fine. I'm indifferent to that, whatever. Is that the God that, that, that we prefer? I, I hope not. So the next thing that we need to talk about is that we know that Jesus, as we talked about, has been given all authority, uh, and he is, he is now the Father's agent. He talks about this a lot in the Gospel of John, but I want to read this uh, visual to you because it's very convicting. In Matthew 25, if you have your Bible, go to Matthew 25, and we'll look at verse 31 um, through 34. This is the final judgment, so take a look at this. If, if, if the, the, Jesus, the Son, now becomes the Father's agent. He now has given him uh, the responsibility and the authority to judge. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he, Jesus, will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats he will place on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
And, and we don't have time to read the whole thing, but if you've never read, read Matthew 25, we include this, as a matter of fact, in uh, the pursuit uh, curriculum. Uh, when we get to the very end, uh, we talk about this and unpack it in great detail because Jesus goes on to say, let me tell you what the sheep look like and let me tell you what the goats look like. And, and it goes on to talk about behavior. It goes on to talk about the way you lived your life. But the thing you're trying to take away today is that Matthew uh, is, is writing down what Jesus said, and Jesus clearly says, I'm going to be the one to judge, and I'm going to separate the redeemed from the unredeemed. I will do that. And that's there. Now turn over to John chapter 5. Go to John chapter 5. And, and we've touched on a little bit of this, but I want to read it for you, for you again. This is verses 22 uh, through 23. Uh, this is, again, Jesus himself talking about that he is now the acting agent uh, for the Father. Uh, look at verses 22 and verses 23. Uh, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So there's Jesus again saying, my Father now is not going to judge anyone. He's given that, that to me, and I will be the one to do this. Now go to Acts. Uh, let's go to the book of Acts. It's right after John, so you're all right. Go to the book of Acts and go to, go to chapter 17. This is that mighty chapter I told you about. And look at verse 31. Verse 31, Acts 17. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, Jesus, the God-man, whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. To show he has the authority to do it, he walked out of the tomb, uh, proving that he is God. So we can, we can rest assured, Scripture clearly says, that Jesus has now become the Father's agent. And then we'll close uh, this week with the index of the heart. The index of the heart. Final judgment, as we saw, will be according to our works, our obedience, our fruit. That is our doings, our, our whole course of life. The re, uh, the, why this is relevant uh, is our doings is not that they ever merit an, an award from the court. They fall too short of perfection to do that. But they do provide, and this is what we've been talking about so much in this Bible study for years, the way we live our life is never enough for that to be all we need to do. However, the way we live our life provides an index of what is in the heart. What, in other words, is the real nature of each agent? Jesus once said, men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Ouch! Matthew 12. Write that down. Verse 36 and 37. He's saying the way this stuff that flows out of your mouth and flows out of your life is an index of your heart. It indicates whether our heart has truly been redeemed by Jesus. Jesus made uh, this very point in Matthew 7. We've talked about this a lot. A tree is recognized by its fruit. How can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Also in Matthew 7, he says what? A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. Only those that do the will of my Father will inherit the kingdom of heaven. All these other people that talk about me are fakes. 
once we see the significance of our works, the fruit, in the last judgment, is, and what that means is on the final judgment, guess what's going to be judged? Our spiritual character. Do, do we look like a genuine, redeemed disciple of Jesus? And this puzzles a lot of people. Maybe this is a better way to put it. Jesus says this, whoever hears my words and does them and believes them, and you believe this, you hear my words, you believe them, and you do them, that person has eternal life. He will not be condemned. He, will, he has crossed over from, from death to life. This was also in John chapter 5. This is verse 24. Paul said this, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether that was good or bad. This is now 2 Corinthians, his second letter, chapter 5, verse 10. How can these two statements be fitted together? How, do, how does free forgiveness and justification by faith square with a judgment according to our works? That's, good. That, 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 that's what we're going to answer. And the answer seems to be biblically as follows. First, the gift of justification certainly shields believers from being condemned and banished from God's presence as sinners. We got that. I'm justified once. That's redemption. This appears from the vision of judgment in the Bible. And you see this in Revelation 20, uh, verse 11 through 15. Where alongside the books, which John says he sees, that records each person's works, the book of life, is open. And those whose names are written there are not thrown into the lake of fire, as the rest are. But the second, the gift of justification, does not at all shield believers from being assessed as Christians or from forfeiting good, which others will enjoy if it, if it turns out that the Christians that they claim to be, they've been slack, they've been mischievous, they've been destructive. Now this appears from Paul's warning to the Corinthians to be careful what lifestyle they build on Christ, the one foundation. Listen to what he says. If any man builds on the foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work shall be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. The fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he'll receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. Reward and loss signify an enriched or impoverished relationship with God, though in what ways is beyond our present power to really know. Final judgment will also be according to our knowledge. Are you someone who fully knew everything and you rejected it? And we see this talked about a lot. Jesus talks about this in, in Matthew 11. And, and it says the principle operating here is that where a man has been given much, much is going to be expected of him. And you find this in Luke chapter 12, uh, verses 47 and 48. The justice of this is obvious. In every case, the judge of all the earth will do what is right. So the bottom line is how this all squares. What, what the Bible keeps talking about is there's evidence of people who've truly been redeemed. And God will take into account, were you someone who was redeemed 
and then you, you knocked it out of gear, but the justification was true, then you'll be a person that, that may be saved, but as Paul says, you'll barely escape the fire, and your rewards in heaven will be minuscule, if any. Then you have those that were redeemed, and they've lived out of life, and they have advanced God's kingdom. Uh, there's the Pauls of the world who says, I'm going to receive the crown of righteousness. I'm going to get a well-done, good, and faithful servant, and, I'll, and my riches in heaven will be many. And then there's going to be those that, that knew everything about the gospel. It was never held back for them. They knew, you know, it, uh, as Jesus says in, in, uh, in Matthew 11, when he talks about the, the cities of Sodom, Gomorrah, and Tyre, at Sidon that were destroyed by God, he said if those cities had heard what Capernaum heard, what Chorazin heard, what Bethsaida heard, if they had seen all the miracles, if I had chosen those cities to show myself like I did in your cities, they would have repented in ashes and dust. But you have seen everything about me, known everything about me, and you still reject me. He says, how much worse will it be for you? Worse on the day of judgment than for Sodom because if they had got the shot you got, they would have repented. So there's that knowledge that's going to be judged too. You know, did, were, were, did you understand everything that was presented to you and still reject it? And all that's going to be considered, and it will be considered perfectly. So when people start saying, well, what about this and what about that? Here's what I can tell you this. Be careful being a daredevil of faith and playing games with your, with, with your redemption. Redemption produces fruit. And those of you that know and have heard and understand that, you need to assess your life, and I need to assess my life to see if we see the fruit of Jesus. When it gets into all this, what about people that never heard, or what about people that didn't know this, or what about this, or what about that? What the Bible clearly says, we're to make disciples, teach people all that he's commanded us, and be about his business. And on the day of judgment, the Lord God Almighty giving Jesus Christ, his son, the agent to deliver the judgment, he will judge each person perfectly and correctly. Paul references, refers to the fact that we must all appear before Christ's judgment seat. And he refers to this in 2 Corinthians 5.11 <clears throat> as the terror of the Lord. Jesus, the Lord like his father, is holy and pure, and we aren't. We live under his eye, and he knows our secrets. And on Judgment Day, the whole of our past life will be played back, as it were, before him and brought under review. If we know ourselves at all, we know that we are not fit to face him. So what are we to do about that? Well, the New Testament answer says, Call on the coming judge to be your present Savior. That's a great line. Call on the coming judge, because that day is coming. He's not there yet. Call on the coming judge to be your current Savior. As judge, he is the law, but as Savior, he is the gospel. And we can be freed from the law by taking him as Savior. Run from him now, and guess when you're going to meet him? If you run from him as Savior, you'll just meet him as judge without hope. Seek him now as Savior, and you'll find him. Because he said, whoever seeks me finds me. And you will then discover that you are looking forward to the future meeting with joy, knowing, as Romans 8, 1 said, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
So it's important for us to make the decision to now know him as present Lord and Savior. And then the day we stand before him as judge is not a day to dread. So right now, if you were to face Jesus the judge, is that a day of joy for you or a day of terror? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this message today. Thank you for the fact that you do love us. But so many times we don't love you. Help us, Lord, to make the corrections in our life that we need to make right now, today. We make those corrections because we do know that we are closer to the day that you stand as judge and the time that you stand as Savior. That time is running out, but we're thankful that it hasn't run out yet. Thank you for the decisions, Lord, that we saw even this past Sunday, those that you are redeeming. And I pray, Lord, that you'll continue to forgive all who repent. And we know that you will because you said you would. And, Lord, we give you the glory, and we thank you. In your name we pray, amen. <clears throat> Thanks for being with us today. If there's anything I can do to help you, rick at rickandbubba.com. Lord willing, we'll talk to you right here again next week.